This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Jump in. So as a way into this lecture, thinking about the Song of Songs, uh, reading it in a broken world, and perhaps for a broken world, I want to talk first about uh, literal bones. Bones, they constitute the central framework of our bodies, they support our flesh structurally, they protect our vital organs, bones are essential to human life. And as is the case with many traditional cultures the world over, bones carry deep significance to the people that we read about in Scripture. A significance that isn't ever really directly explained, to the best of my knowledge, but somehow appears to be connected to the way that bones uphold and enable human life. Even after a person has died, their bones in some manner are still considered them, and they deserve to be respected. Think of when Moses brought Joseph's bones with him out of Egypt. Or how in Leviticus, a person with broken bones could not draw near to the tabernacle. Bones uh, show up in many other places in the scriptures, and they show up surprisingly early in the biblical story. They show up on page two. They show up with uh, symbolic force. So in the story of Genesis 2, this primordial history the second creation account, we read about a man, the man, who's been given the work of tending the Garden of Eden. Eden literally means delight. Tending the Garden of Delight. Um, and part of his work is to give names to the other living creatures. But things aren't good for this man because he's found to be alone. He's without a suitable helper. So in response to this not-goodness, the Lord causes the man to fall into a deep slumber. And he, he takes from the man one of his bones, his ribs. And the Lord somehow fashions a suitable helper, a woman for the man. Uh, and the language here is important. Suitable helper. Connecto etzer. It carries with it the reality of someone who is similar to him. Unlike all the animals, something that is, is like him but also distinct from him. That's this idea of connecto. It's the same, different. And also someone who can join him in the work God has given him to care for this garden. And that is this word etzer, a helper. So it has connotations of strength. There's also connotations of correspondence, mutuality, and a shared vocation. But the man wakes up from the sleep, and he sees the woman for the first time, and he cries out, At last, bone of my bones! Flesh of my flesh, this is bone of my bones. And for those keeping track at home, these are the first human words recounted in Scripture. Uh, they are words of joyful recognition, of mutuality, of partnership, and of suitability 
between the man and the woman. They are of the same stuff. So even though the man was created first, these words imply a shared status. These two are kindred. They are equal partners. This mirrors, this complements the teaching of Genesis 1, where in a way that was radically countercultural at the time, both male and female, man and woman, are made in the image of God. They both image God. In the ancient world, this was something reserved for men, but not all men, royalty. This was something for kings. And Genesis 1 democratizes this. It says all people, regardless of their socioeconomic status, carry God's image. They all have the same dignity and worth and the same task of bearing that image and of ruling over creation. There is so much going on in these highly debated enigmatic texts, and there's thorny exegetical knots that I am just going to sidestep uh, and not deal with, because I want to focus on this phrase, what he, what the man says to the woman, this at last is bone of my bones. You are my equal. When it comes to the biblical vision of male and female, it's a tantamount that we start here. It is the beginning. Um, men and women carry the same manner of dignity. They're distinct, but they are equal partners in the work of being humans. They are bony in that sense. They share the same sort of stuff. But this is not all that happens in the opening chapters. It's not all that the scriptures have to say about being a man and a woman in our world. Our world, like so many of the bones within our world, have been bruised and broken by the presence of sin. God's original vision of shalom, of wholeness, has been vandalized by sin, this this foreign agent that has snuck in. Things are not how they should be. And this is particularly true, or it's highlighted, this aspect is highlighted in the relationship between men and women. The rupture of sin happens on multiple levels, between humanity and God, between humanity and all of creation, between humanity and itself, internal dissonance, but also between humans and other humans. The dynamics of of power and and asymmetrical power between the genders is highlighted in the words of Genesis 3.16, where to the woman it said, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. We don't have the time, uh, and it's not necessarily a place to recount the history of violence and pain that women have suffered disproportionately throughout history. And there's no need to think about it in just sort of that way. Of course, men have suffered at the hands of other men. Men have suffered at the hands of women. Women have suffered at the hands of other women. But there is a general asymmetry of power that has adversely affected women through history. And into this world of unequal power, a world of broken bones, we find a very unusual gift in this book of scripture, the Song of Songs, which means literally the best song. This is the best song. Um, I don't. Uh, there's no pun intended, but this book barely uh, made it into scripture. Uh, that was a bad joke there. Um, and it did so late in the game. It is a late, late edition. And on your first read, you might think to yourself, yeah, how did this, how did this make the cut? Um, there's not much in it that might clue readers into it being a part of a sacred or religious text. 
In fact, it might easily be the least biblical book of all the books that made it into the scriptures. At least when we think about the sort of things you assume you would find in the scriptures. Like maybe a direct reference to God. There is one verse towards the very end in chapter 8, which can either be translated as the flame of Yah, which is a shortened title maybe for Yahweh, or it could just mean the best flame, the strongest flame. It's a like debated point in he- by Hebrew scholars. It's above my head, but there's not a clear reference to God <clears throat> in the text. And we don't see any direct talk of the spiritual activities we so quickly associate with the life of faith. Prayer, fasting, communal worship. Instead, the song appears to indulgently revel in the beauty and ecstasy of human love between a man and a woman. And for those who haven't read the text recently, um, we're gonna, I'm going to read some for you, as well as my wife Sarah is going to read some. And the appropriateness of Sarah reading some is because of all the texts in Scripture, this text, is uh, the primary speaker, is a woman. This is the only text in Scripture where the predominant voice is female. So let's hear... The words of this text, read by a woman, there, we'll also see that there's, there's a call and response nature to this text. So, um, all throughout the book. So, Sarah will start, I'll respond. If it makes you feel awkward, I feel more awkward. Uh, so don't, don't worry about that. Uh, but we're just gonna read a little bit for you here. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. I am very dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, Where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flock, beside the flocks of your companions? Then it it switches over to a male voice. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyard of Angedi. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, 
You are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So that's a little taste. We'll read more. Uh, You'll hear from Sarah again. Um, But that's a taste of it. And yet for its apparent lack of spiritual substance and seeming indulgence in romance... For centuries, the song has been an absolute favorite text for the spiritual lives of both Jews and Christians. That is, at least until somewhat more recently. During the times when the book's canonical status was being considered, one rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, is reported to have said, all the world is not worth the day when the Song of Songs was given to Israel. For all the writings are holy, But the Song of Songs is the Holy of Holies. And though some rabbis saw things slightly differently, uh, ultimately Akiva's opinion carried the day. The song's popularity was also true in the Christian church. Some of the earliest extra-biblical material we have are sermons on the Song of Songs. And by the medieval period, Bernard of Clairvaux preached 86 sermons on these eight chapters of poetry. He died before he finished them. He got to chapter 3, verse 1. And he preached these sermons primarily to celibate monks. It's wild. Uh, It's wild stuff. Now what was common move amongst both Jewish and Christian authors was to understand the poems as allegories. Allegories literally means other talk. To say one thing, but to mean something else. And so the subject matter here, while appearing to be a celebration of the beauty and love and sexual intimacy between two lovers, when it's read allegorically, this is really about an individual soul and Jesus, uh, or the people of Israel and Yahweh on an allegorical read. Uh, an example of what, how this sort of would look, uh, I'll read some from the fourth chapter and tell you a common uh, interpretive move. So these are the words from uh, from the man to the woman. It says, How beautiful you are, how very beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. For what it's worth, uh, this isn't the fourth chapter. He actually already used this line, uh, your eyes are doves, in the first chapter. He's reusing uh, these lines. So there's a biblical precedent. If it works, just keep... Keep going with your compliments. He says, your hair, your hair is like a flock of goats moving down the slopes of Gilead. 
Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them is bereaved. Your lips are like a crimson thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in courses. On it hang a thousand bucklers, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like fawns, twins of a gazelle that feed among the lilies. Now, a common move on an allegorical read, the strategy, was to see these two breasts that are like fawns as not actual breasts, but as the Bible, the Old Testament on the left and the New Testament on the right. And as you could imagine, this sort of allegorical reading has fallen on incredibly hard times. Uh, Today, the default assumption by those who read the book or who study the book at all, especially on a scholarly level, have more or less completely uh, reversed the reading attempt. The song is now understood to be almost exclusively and only about love, physical love and intimacy, intimacy shared between two people. There's no deeper spiritual significance that needs to be excavated or spiritually perceived. It's worth noting, too, I think, that as the default assumptions about the book have changed, so has the book's popularity. Uh, I don't know if there's a correlation between these two. I just think it's, it's interesting that when it was read, I mean, I've never heard a sermon or teaching on the Song of Songs. Maybe some of you have. It's not a common thing in, in religious circles that I've been in. Uh, but in, in the Middle Ages, and for much of its, its um, history, the, when it was read allegorically, it was comparable to sort of like an Enneagram podcast today. Very popular. Or like Instagram out-of-context Bible verses that are inspiring you, that are hashtag blessed. That's sort of what the Song of Song was for generations. Um... And so it's important to ask, what sort of reading is appropriate here? This allegorical, where it's, it's, it says one thing, but it means something else, or just literal. It just is about this. And I actually want to put that, a place marker there for a minute. We'll come back to it. Uh, I want to address what I think is the other major interpretive question about this book, and that is the role of Solomon uh, in these poems. As Sarah read... The opening line is the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And sometimes the text is called Song of Solomon. So what role does he play in these poems? A good contemporary translation of these poems will have breaks throughout the text that highlight the back-and-forth nature, as you just heard Sarah and I read. Um, uh, that's clear in the Hebrew, but not clear as clear in just straight English. So we read the woman speaking about and then to her lover, And he responds likewise, praising her and speaking to her. Back and forth, back and forth. And there's an occasional interjection by a group of onlookers um, that praise them and commend their love, which is a little unusual. Um, but, But it's mostly this back and forth. And throughout the poems, the female lover speaks of both a shepherd and a king. We heard both mentioned in what was read before. And throughout the history of interpretation, a significant question has been whether the male lover in the text is in fact just Solomon. Is it Solomon himself? Is he both the king and the shepherd? These two titles given to one person. Or are there two male characters here? And there should be a distinction between a powerful king 
and a lowly shepherd. Is King Solomon a kingly, shepherding, celebratory male voice in the text? Or is the celebratory uh, male voice that of the lovers, who is a lowly shepherd, while Solomon, the infamously adulterous king of Israel, is actually more of a foil, an ominous, dark, and powerful shadow over this mutual celebration of intimacy between the lowly shepherd and his lover who has been brought in to uh, Solomon's courts. So I have to confess, uh, the more I read about this, the more I thought about this, I actually do sort of have some pretty strong doubts that Solomon is being presented positively here as the sole male voice in these poems for a few reasons. The first is that, again, the primary initiator and the predominant speaking voice of these poems is the female lover. It's not a man. She is the instigator here. This would be unthinkable in Solomon's day, especially in Solomon's court, where he was the most powerful man in all of Israel. But then also think about how crowded Solomon's court actually was. His characterization in the rest of scriptures, he's associated with great wisdom, and he has great wisdom. And in fact, this text is often classified as a wisdom text. It has things to tell you to help you live your life well. (coughs) But his heart was carried away by his libido. I find it somewhat difficult to reconcile the Solomon of 1 Kings 11, where he's said to have 700 wives and 300 concubines. And to do that math very quickly for you, that is 1,000 women at his disposal at any time. It's hard to reconcile that sort of sexual lifestyle that appetite with the words of the male voice in these poems, who so singularly celebrates and adores and intimately attends to one woman whom he knows very, very deeply. Solomon uh, appears to collect women like the way my son collects Pokemon cards, just more and more and more. I've been persuaded here by the work of an Old Testament scholar uh, named Ian Proven. Uh, in his commentary on the text. And he sees Solomon as an essentially negative character lurking in the background throughout these poems. Proven's reading, which is not unique to him, it's actually quite an old reading. Uh, it goes back at least a thousand years to a Spanish medieval Torah commentator, Abraham Ibn Ezra. It goes back pretty far. So this is not like just some new critical feminist reading of the text. Uh, it's not his own. There's a, there's a tradition here. But the drama that lies behind these poems is the following. that the, the female voice of the text, this woman, again, our main voice in the text, uh, she has been enlisted into the king's harem. This is what she said in what Sarah read. The king has brought me into his chambers. Uh, but throughout these poems, she's expressing her love not for the king who she shares her bed with 999 other women, and whose home she would have been taken into against her will. But instead, her love is for her lowly shepherd lover, who she knew before she was brought in. This is behind the back and forth of the poems that we see in the first two chapters, uh, and really through the rest of the book. Uh, In chapter 3, we come to a strong juxtaposition, we'll see a little bit of it, between two sorts of lovers. The first is recounted in an intimate dream, longing for the one whom my soul loves. This, then, is in distinction 
with an ostentatious and decadent royal bed who has a powerful owner. The poems in chapters 4 and 5 continue a back and forth between the lovers, praising each other's in joy and an intimate knowledge of each other. It carries these covenantal overtones, too, uh, though there's nothing that's clear that this is officially marriage in the text. Chapters 6 and 7 continue in this way, and the poems conclude in chapter 8, where the woman is very clear that nothing, neither her family nor the king, will claim possession of her. She has given herself to her lover. Now, this is an interpretive decision that you have to make um, about how to make sense of this seemingly disparate collection of semi-erotic love poems. There's other ways of reading it. The common way of reading it follows the tradition of uh, early church theologian named Origen, who's the one who says Solomon is, is, the, is the lone male voice. But what's compelling for me are, are really some of the final lines of the text. This comes from chapter 8. Sarah's going to read this for us. This is 8. There's actually a little bit of back and forth here. Uh, 8, 11 to 14. This is sort of how, this is not sort of, this is how the book concludes. Solomon had a vineyard at Balhaman. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand, and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. O you who dwell in the gardens, with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of spices. That's how the book ends. And this, this name of the place where Solomon has a vineyard, Baal Haman literally means lord or husband of a multitude. Solomon is spoken here in the third person, something that's often characteristic about the song. He's often spoken about um, as, as like he's named. There's some distancing. Yet she turns to her beloved, her lover, and speaks more face to face throughout the story. In verse 11, the vineyard is of ludicrous value. It's worth, what, is it, what does it say? Uh, a thousand pieces of silver. And it, alert, it alerts us that we're most likely not thinking about a literal vineyard here, a literal piece of real estate that Solomon owns, but is instead, as it has been throughout the preceding chapters of the verse, or chapters of, uh, of the poem, the vineyard is a symbol for the woman herself. This is underlined uh, by the truth that a thousand, uh, Solomon already has a thousand vineyards. So we've seen from 1 Kings 11, he had a thousand women at his disposal. Yet her vineyard is not for him. The original Hebrew is very emphatic. My vineyard, which is mine, is my own to dispose of. She is not for sale. Keep your money. Keep your Keep your property. Proven comments that the song is, and this is a longer quote from him, a stirring tale of fidelity to first love in the face of power, coercion, and all the temptations of the royal court. And it sets before us, for our consideration, two different kinds of male-female relationship. The first, which occupies most of the attention of the song, 
is that manner of relationship in which a woman and a man enter freely into love and sexual intimacy, bind themselves in lasting commitment to each other and giving themselves to each other, physically and emotionally, in joyful abandonment that knows no reservation or shame. The second kind of relationship with lurks in the background of the song and occasionally has the spotlight shown on it, places the male in a dominant and powerful position over the female, such that she doesn't enter the relationship by choice, but is only a pawn in the game that has to do with legal contracts, money, and the collection of objects of pleasure. So the first kind of relationship, the song exalts. It's underlined, again, the dominant speaking voice and the clear initiative initiator here is the woman. This is the sort of relationship we saw envisioned for us in the Garden of Delight. Mutuality, bone of my bone. Yet tragically and sadly, it's the second sort of relationship between a man and a woman. However distinct and different from the woman here in the Song of Songs, that far too many women have known themselves and in which the Bible has often been used to legitimate as God ordained. But this is not the bone-of-my-bone, flesh-of-flesh mutuality that we read about in the radical vision of Genesis 2 or is celebrated throughout these poems. So this brings us back then to the question of whether to read these poems in the allegorical way. Do they say one thing but intend something else entirely? Or has been done, as has been done in most of the, the book's history, or read them more literally, recounting them as just a celebration of human love. Those are our options. Which way do we go? I say yes. <laughs> uh, I, while I don't think the sort of allegorical reading where breasts are testaments is plausible, but there is more going on in these texts than just a celebration of desire and delight and intimacy, though it is that. I think the song, <clears throat> through its pro- poetic brilliance, works on two distinct levels simultaneously, that of sexual love and that of divine human love. This shouldn't surprise a reader of scripture. Sex is never just sex in the biblical imagination. Uh, It takes two distinct people and makes them one. It fuses them on this deep level. It's also, in the words of Paul, a mystery. It's somehow showing us the nature of Christ in the church. And remember Rabbi Akiva's take All of scripture is holy, but the song of songs is the holy of holies. Think about the way throughout the Old Testament that God describes himself as a husband to a wife, or the language in the concluding book of the the Christian scriptures, Revelation, the bride and the bridegroom. Um, There's more going on here, I think, than just the celebration of one couple's intimacy. And helpful for me here is an excellent scholar named Ellen Davis. She teaches at Duke Divinity School. And she unlocked much of the book's poetic for me through a literary convention that's called Intertextuality. Intertextuality. And if that sounds like a big, fancy, academic-y word, you're right, it is. And to be honest, you actually don't need to know what the word is. Uh, but to be aware of its presence, of, of what this how texts work in scripture can make them alive in new ways. It has done so for me. And so I'm very grateful for Davis. She's written quite a bit on Song of Songs. Um, 
And this idea of intertextuality simply means uh, that a large part of how the poem does what it do- does what it does, how the song works, is it recycles language. It deliberately reuses keywords from other significant moments in Scripture to clue attentive readers in to the presence of a deeper meaning. It doesn't just quote. It doesn't quote. It alludes to. It's this inner biblical dialogue. And while this term has text in it, intertextuality, I think it's how a lot of really good communication works. It's not just an ancient writing practice. It's part of our contemporary speech. I think a great example of this was when Barack Obama was elected president for the first time, his first inauguration speech. In Millennium Park in Chicago, on that cold night, he gave a stirring, stirring speech. And he said, we've once again reached out and touched the arc of history and bent it again towards justice. No one had any doubts on what he was saying. It made perfect sense. Everyone watching, everyone listening, everyone present. But to anyone who was familiar with this American civil rights movement, heard a deeper level of meaning to it. Martin Martin Luther King Jr. often said, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. So what Barack was doing there was not directly quoting Dr. King, but he was alluding, he was echoing, he was taking bits and pieces of King's well-known language and incorporating into his own to not just say, look, we are, we won, it's great, this is a wonderful moment. He's saying his presidency is sort of the culmination of the civil rights movement, or at least it's led to this, maybe not the final culmination, there's a lot of work still to do. But it's, it's a type of, uh, it's a type of communication tool that is not just in ancient texts, it's all over the scriptures though. You could think of the page of scriptures as something like a Wikipedia page. You can read the page through, you stay on it, you get the point, stop to uh, uh, start to end. But there are these certain important words that are in blue, and they're hyperlinked. And if you don't know what it means, you, you click the hyperlink, and it sends you to another page to fill in what's going on on that Wikipedia page, to add more information, to add more depth, to add more, add more meaning. And there's all these hyperlinked terms all over Scripture. The problem is they're not blue. Uh, so you need helpful readers, people like Ian Proven, people like Ellen Davis, if you want to read Song of Songs, um, to begin to see how this works. Or we just continue to immerse ourselves in Scripture. And when we hear words that remind us of things that have previously been written or said, we go back and look and see if there's some sort of connection. So when we do this, I think that we see that these poems aren't just a celebration of intimacy and delight between lovers uh, in ancient Israel, though it is clearly that, and can never be less than that, we do discover deeper levels of spiritual reality. And this is all over all over the song, and I want to just highlight a couple. Uh, for example, the words that come uh, at the, the beginning of the second chapter, which Sarah read, and I'll apologetically just read now, uh, where the woman says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. Now, although these names are familiar to people kind of in cultures that still use names like lily, or there's a couple kid songs, I believe, that have this uh, in it, we're familiar with these terms. What's interesting is we actually have no clue what these flowers are. There's no consensus, there's no idea. We don't know what flowers are being spoken about here. 
Uh, there's no historical reference for that. But what we do know in the scriptural imagination, in the world of the scriptures, these flowers were very important to the prophets. Uh, in particular, Hosea and Isaiah, who use these flowers at key moments in their prophetic work to give an image, a depiction of what it would look like for Israel to be restored after a time of devastation by their enemies and alienation from Yahweh. So I'm just going to read uh, this, this quickly. The wilderness, this is from Isaiah, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a crocus. That's the lily of the valley, a crocus. They don't know what it, they don't know what exactly it is. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God. It keeps going and Hosea uses it in a very similar way. Now it's interesting that for both these prophets, the blossoming of these particular flowers that the female lover says she is like, uh, blossoming in the arid, dry landscape of ancient Israel was a symbolic representation of Israel being restored before God. Read within the story of the Old Testament, the deliberate choice of these obscure flowers, other than what they meant to the prophets, was perhaps intended to bring attentive readers, bring to mind a profound theological truth about what God is doing with his people. The type of God who renews, who restores. And this leads to a telling aspect of the song that uh, has actually, there's been some interesting scholarly work on this. Um, in particular, a woman named uh, Elaine James in her book, Landscape of the Song of Songs, Poetry and Place. And she comments that more than other any other biblical text, the song is saturated with imagery related to the natural world. You have vineyards, you have fields, you have gardens, there's gazelles, there's deer, there's a mare, there's a dove. There's 24 varieties of plants mentioned throughout the poems. So for them to choose specific ones that are more or less unknown is telling. Spices, wildflowers, trees, herbs, and oil. There's hardly a thought, feeling, or movement that is not likened to a plant or a living creature. And it shows us something about what love is like in the Bible. What love is like between people and also God's love for his world. Literary critic Robert Alter, in his well-known book, The Art of Biblical Poetry, which is a very unpoetic, dense, and difficult book, he makes a point that all of this landscape and creational imagery which pervades the song, you've heard some of it read already tonight, it moves in the opposite direction of what we see in nearly all other love poetry. Most, In most other love poetry, Eros, or love, leads the lovers away from the world. We are to detach from this world in order to attach more fully to our lover. Think of any sitcom, think of any rom-com. We all know the expectation and the tradition of spurning our responsibilities in this world in which we find ourselves in order to create a safe cocoon for our love to flourish. But this isn't the direction of the song at all. The world in which they find themselves is drawn into their love. It's not left behind. Their love is expressed in these poems, and it incorporates them more fully into their own world, and their own world into their love. 
Now, an example of this that is uh, a fun part of, uh, I, well, a fun part of the song, uh, and Sarah will read this for us. This is 2.5 for you, Sarah, on your list. Uh, comes in the second chapter. Um, this is pretty much picking up right where we left off before. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of sin has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. <coughs> let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet, and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. It's interesting, this, this poem about a new spring of love. It's alive with birdsong and bloom. There's seven aspects uh, uh, to what spring looks like, which is a significant number um, but that's a little throwaway comment. But for all their praising and adoring of each other throughout the poems, we actually don't gain any insight into what they could possibly look like. But we do get a better idea of what the landscape of Israel was like at their time. The sort of flowers they enjoyed, the animals that they husbanded. Um, now directly after these words, uh, we come across one more place where perhaps this tool of intertextual reading can help us highlight the twofold way of reading these poems as being at one and the same time about human love as well as divine human love. So this is chapter 3, the first four verses. On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares, I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them. When I found him whom my soul loves, I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. There's this four... Thank you, Sarah. There is this fourfold repetition of him whom my soul loves. It also appeared in chapter 1. 
It's literally the one who my whole being, my nefesh, loves. Which Ellen Davis comments is a syntactical construction that it is as, as cumbersome and weird in Hebrew as it is in English. All lovers know this sort of anxiety, this longing for the other. But her use of this surprising and by all appearances deliberate language when she could have used what she does elsewhere throughout the text, the tighter and simpler beloved, is perhaps intended to call to mind another well-known piece of biblical language. Uh, it's not the sort of language, this is just not the sort of language you would use to file a missing persons report. Have you seen the one whom my soul loves? <laughs> Yet this odd phrase isn't a slip of the tongue. It's repeated four times. And uh, Davis also points out <clears throat> that for this gifted poet to willingly sacrifice poetic elegance in order to call our attention, perhaps call our attention, by using a phrase that sounds out of place is telling. Davis wonders as if this deliberately awkward rendering was meant to call to mind and underscore the single most important verse of the whole Torah, <coughs> the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your nefesh and with all you've got. In the biblical world, he is the only one who we've been called to love in such a manner and then our neighbor as ourselves. Uh, so there's mo there are more of these sorts of moments throughout the poem, this evocative and, and telling recycling of significant Old Testament language. Um, but time doesn't allow us to kind of go through the whole thing. Uh, but it begs the question of whether our modern tendency of seeing just sex and just desire here, as well as an earlier ages tendency to see only allegory and only spirituality here, if both of those tendencies mirror wider cultural assumptions about the relationship between sexuality and spirituality both realms of human desire. A full reading of the song stretches our minds to span categories of experience that our modern intellects all too often neatly separate and compartmentalize from one another. The desire for intimacy with God, as well as the desire for intimacy with another, are central to what it means to be human. Davis writes, Our world is groaning under the burdens of instantaneous contacts, and temporary relationships, high mobility, commitments lightly undertaken and readily set aside. Too many souls are stunted and arrested in permanent adolescence. Could it be that the cultivation of real intimacy with both God and another is the greatest social and spiritual challenge of our time? The final reuse of significant Old Testament language, this sort of echo, this reusing of language that I want to consider uh, I think is really the climactic moment of the song. And it's a moment that actually brings us back to our roots. It brings us back to the garden. I've already acknowledged the asymmetry of power between men and women that has characterized so much of our history. A world of broken and bruised bones. The author of Genesis have said that, has said that this was not God's intention for the world. This has come about through the entrance of sin. Here again, the words of Genesis 3.16 to the woman. Your desire, 
will be towards your husband, but it is he who will rule over you. Yet here in the song, at a climactic moment, we hear this word again. So I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to read from, we're going to read together. Uh, I'm going to start and then Sarah's going to pick up. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding of the lips and teeth. I am my beloved's and his desire is This word for desire in Hebrew, it appears only here and in Genesis 3 and 4. In Genesis 3, it's part of the curse. And in Genesis 4, it's uh, it's God's words to Cain. He says, sin is crouching at your door like a lion. And if you don't do well, its desire is for you. It's going to get you. And it's almost as though that this word is so fraught, this word desire, it's so fraught and so painful that no one else in Scripture has dared touch it yet. That is, until here. And it's here that the woman exclaims something of a reversal, something of an undoing of the words that we find in Genesis 3. That is, until here... Oh, sorry. Here the song is most radical, literally going to the roots of things, to begin its work of healing and renewal. The work that the God of the scriptures does. This word desire in the biblical imagination brings us back to the dawn of time. To one of our deepest pains. One of the deepest pains the world knows. But instead of underlining it, our poet is witnessing to, if only imaginatively, momentarily, and poetically, its undoing. Through the mutual and reverential love, these two, if only for a moment... And only in the words of poetry, perhaps taste the way things were meant to be. This is perhaps part of the song's unique contribution, to point to the healing of the deepest wounds in the created order. That is the work of God. We've already seen how the fall, I mentioned earlier, the fall works with these various separations. Sin plays itself out between us and God. And if there's any legitimacy to sort of a deeper reading to the Song of Songs. The song is attesting to a God who renews, who, who causes flowers to bloom in the desert. The song, the fall also deals with, with enmity between us and creation, which we've seen creation has been brought in in some way to these poems and to their love. And then also enmity between the man and the woman uh, that is here for a moment in this sort of love undone. Now, there's certainly more to say about the song and what it might mean for a broken world. Uh, but I want to wrap up, and I want to return to the image of bones, and in particular, the broken bones of women. Now, it goes without saying that the Christian church, who has dwelt on these poems for years, has failed to live up to its own vision. The church's track record is troubling in many ways. I don't need to elaborate it. I just want to acknowledge it. But that's not all that the church has done. That's not all that this vision 
of how men and women are to relate has done to the world, has given to the world. Anglican priest and author Tish Harrison Warren remarks on how the biblical vision of mutuality, of being bone of my bone, can literally be traced in the bones of women in ancient Europe. She points to a fascinating and telling correspondence between the time when the Christian gospel arrived in a community and the integrity of the bones of the women there. Simply put, before the gospel came, these communities, the skeletons that have been excavated, evidence signs of pervasive and severe abuse. Broken bones do not lie. These women were all too commonly bruised and beaten in horrific and inhumane ways. So what their bones still tell us. Yet within a couple of decades of this new vision of what it means to be human arriving in these same places, the records change. You no longer see pervasive broken bones of women. This vision took root uh, between men and women to see each other as bone of bone, flesh of flesh. This is some of what the gift of this, these poems can give to a broken world. And that is where I'm going to stop, because I've gone on significantly longer than I thought I would. But we'll, we'll take some time to answer, well, I'll respond to any of your questions. I might, I might not have an answer. Um, but it's a wonderful book, to, a wonderful bit of scripture to, to sit with, to reflect with to continue in, but I'm happy to chat. You're also free to go. Uh, it is Valentine's Day. Um, you might have a hot date. I don't know. Um, Yep, uh, it's in 7, uh, seven uh, 10. I am my beloved, and his desire is for me. So is that, are you, are you, I wasn't quite clear on that, that final point. Is that, are you saying that that word desire is sort of intrinsically negative desire? It's more, or, or no. just, it's, it's, used in negative context earlier in the Bible and then instead of redeeming this Yeah, it's turned it's turned around here. Yep, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry if that wasn't clear. Um, yeah, because it's only used in those two other places and then here. Um, so and especially this desire it's desire toward or for. Um, so So does that mean it means desire for a person? As opposed to, he will give us the desires of our heart. I mean, desires. There must be other. Yeah, there's other, there's other language. Yeah, there's other, there's other words. Yeah, yeah, there's other words for desire, but yeah, it's just sort of, it's, uh, the word is, I mean, not that I know that much about it, uh, teshuka. And, um, yeah, it's just in these three spots. So.
one of those songs where it just barely made it into the Bible theme? Maybe expand a little bit more about like why it did? Or? Um, I don't really know too much about it other than it, it came quite late and it was it was very it was contested kind of what I said and I, I, part of it's um, there are rabbis uh, that speak about um, uh, it can no like you can't sing any of the words in basically in a bar anymore and um, which makes people wonder if people were singing it uh, in a bar, which is why they had to say why that that came in and so um, there's that and there's just again like I said there's not the the sort of stuff you expect to find in a scriptural book and it's late so um, I don't know maybe are you do you know is that what you're it's it's similar to the book of Esther God is not mentioned you know except for that one reference that you uh, um, spoke about and Aunt Esther was another book that was contested, mm. and they didn't know, you know, it was a late comer. Yeah, yeah. Hey, when you say late, you mean late to the Hebrew scriptures, actually? Yep. What what, would, what year would that be? Let me get back to you on that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm, I don't it know. Be there by Jesus' time, I assume. Yep, I think so. I mean, it's it's used in. <coughs> um, it's used in different. I mean. I guess there's not like a there's one uh, in John there's one sort of direct um, quote of it but uh, or, or, or not to, but like the language is very close but there's a lot of people who see it as like that that idea of the intertextuality like echoes all throughout all throughout the New Testament so it seems I mean by then yeah um, it was being used in and there's um, you know it's it's grouped often with uh, on what's called like the little scroll, and so songs like Le- or, or books like Lamentations um, that would correspond that would be read on certain certain holy days. So it has it had a liturgical life, or at least parts of it did. I'm a little fuzzy on that at the moment. I can't really remember, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you remember your name again too? Uh, Greg. Hey, Greg. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure if you've talked about this. Uh, probably, you probably did. I missed it. I might not. So how would this book apply to someone that's single? Yeah, yeah. Or how can you get the spiritual benefits of what you're talking about if you're single person? Yeah, I mean, I think it's tr- it's like I said, it's it's a it's a book that is. Um, I think if you read it as as sort of doing two things at once, speaking of both. Again, a human to human love and then divine to human love. You know, I think that second door opens up ways to understand, you know, how these texts speak about about who God is, about what God is doing. Um, but it also, um, I don't, but there's part of me that wants to completely, or wants to, I don't want to give like, oh, well, this is how as a single person you can read these, these semi-erotic uh, love poems, and I mean, perhaps, or, or maybe not. But um, um, yeah, I think that's a good question. That I'd be open to hear from others as well. I mean, I do think part of the, I do think that the allegorical, re- the tradition of that, got a little out of hand at times, and a little seemed 
to be pretty uncomfortable with some of the embodiedness of it, the sexuality of it. Um, but it seems like there is something to that impulse as you as, as you read closely. Like it's not, which I was trying to show with some of those verses that echo and kind of engage with key other key biblical ideas that kind of push towards that. So I, yeah, I don't know. Did you have your hand up, Elizabeth? There. I guess I just had a couple thoughts. I don't know if they're connected too well. So one thought is um, kind of thinking about something that Tim Mackey has pushed into a little bit of just this idea of poetry that it's not something that we learn as much as it's something that we feel. And so I think especially when you're talking about love, that's something you need to feel you can't really learn. It's not, it's not knowledge as much. So I think that's one thought I have. And then another thought I have is um, there's another author that was talking about there's a difference between married and single and kind of what place does that have um, as we depict God. And so the married couple, this particular author, was kind of trusting in the idea that you see the, the depth of God's love in married couples. But that in singleness, you see the breadth of God's love. So I sort of guess I'm putting together those two thoughts in my head, and I'm wondering, as a, as a single person, if sort of being able to kind of almost emotionally connect to what it would be like to have that deep love, because there's something of God to know there, um, and so the poetry allowing you to connect emotionally rather than necessarily cognitively. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Also, that makes me think about, like, I don't know if this is correct, but, I mean, this is a time period where most marriages are arranged. We're not really talking about, like, romantic love as the standard, right? Or are Because there's a part of me that just makes me think about, like, this writing is maybe a gateway for lots of people to experience this in theory as a as like an intellectual process that they would never actually experience in their life. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, yeah, on that I don't exactly know all of sort of how marriage practices and yeah, yeah, well, I mean, certainly from if you are abducted and taken into Solomon's harem, that would Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, well, I didn't really... Yeah, it. no, I mean, I think of... Uh, um, with, uh, with with Rachel and Leah, like, and sort of getting duped, you know, um, uh, and sort of being like, all right, well, uh, that's, sort of, that's a very different way of uh, institutionalizing of... Of marriage, so yeah, that's a good point. I want. I just was going back to um, to this, though. I mean, I, I do think it is telling. Or there's something to the fact, and even if I I don't want to agree with, again, all of the way that the like allegorical tradition went with this text, but it does sort of say that there is there's more of a connection to like to our desires than. One is just physical, and like one is just spiritual, um, and they. <clears throat> I don't want to talk too much about this as, um, as someone who's not, um, as someone who's married. Um, I don't want to, in any way, kind of like 
pander or make it sound like it's you know it's you know it's no big deal. But um, yeah, it does seem like I, when reading them together, sort of reading them together does say these things are 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 deeply related and and deeply good. But in many ways too. So like the opening line is, you know, one of the opening lines of the text is um, that Sarah read is. Um, is almost like a false promise in the book, um, because you know it's, she says, uh, "Let let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine." And it's not like it's it's love making. The word is like it's it's sex, but there's no recounting of that anywhere uh, in the songs. There's lots of desire, but we don't have words that really talk about, they don't talk about ever really coming together. They sort of talk towards it. They talk of longing, you know, this whole, this 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 dream about seeking, seeking, I sought, I'm seeking, I sought. Uh, but there's not a lot of time spent in consummation or talking about that. So there's a lot of unmet desire in the Song of Songs uh, as well. Uh, so, anyway, I don't want to, I don't know if that necessarily is, is help or anything, but yeah. Just the one, one thing, I mean, it's maybe just so completely basic, but um, something that this person can draw from it, regardless of whether they're married or single, is just, is just the, the goodness of human sexuality. That it is a good thing, it is a gift from God, it's something that's celebrated in the psalm and in the, in the, in the book, and whether you currently able to enjoy that 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 kind of love or not, or whether you ever will, it's still it's still there, um, proclaiming that this this is a good thing. Love. And your desire There's is a good thing. All kinds of periods in the church, even today, in various places where where sexuality is so under suspicion as being you know sexual desire is so um, yeah sort of demonized or or, or Portrayed as um, this pretty, pretty terrible, potentially explosive thing that'll ruin you and leave you away, leave you away from God, and and then you know suddenly you get married and it's all okay or whatever. You know, there's just there's so much or such a lack of willingness within so many churches to discuss the goodness of sexuality. Yeah, I think this is just it's important for single and married people to hear this. It's not. and it's not as though the only way to order your sexual life is in marriage. There's a lot of people that um, have have chosen, actively chosen, uh, to not partake in sex to sort of to give themselves. I know that's a different sort of situation than people who want to get married uh, and want to find a partner and don't. But I think the church, historically, and there are some unhealthy aspects. I'm not trying to present it as all like good, but but trying to say it's not as though sexuality is only something available for people that are having sex. Like, it's not as though by not having sex, you cut off you cut off your desire, you cut off your longing. Um, it's, it's ordered kind of in a different... You, you, you arrange it in a different way. And yeah, go ahead, or you look like you're going to... I thought you said earlier on that, um, that it was supposed to be sex or love was supposed to be this connection between physical and spiritual uh, where you have 
physical act and a spiritual act happening at the same time. And it's, it's the closest thing that we can experience on Earth to what it should have been like in the garden before the fall. I think that's what you were saying. Yeah, or as a, as like a, yeah, like as a possibility. Like I think that's sort of the connotation of her language there in 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 seven. That this is sort of if language that's taking us back to like things. You know, the fall is not that everything is now ruined completely. Everything is totally, totally up for grabs. It's just that everything is tainted. And there is evil in everything. But not um, not totally or all-encompassingly, but it just sort of touches on different things. And it's... Our hope is that, the, you know, as far as the curse is... As far as the curse goes is God's work of, of renewal, of taking it back. And it's almost as though she is presenting this moment, this relationship, as a, as a taste of that. It's very poetic, it's, it's imaginative, it's, and it's momentary. It's not, you know, forever. But sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I was just wondering if, if that's what... Um, so, is there anything comparable that a, a single person can experience in life? So, like, if you get that as um, somebody that's married, this... this taste of what it should have been like Mm -hmm. before the fall and perhaps even something that draws people closer to God and in a very unique way is there something that's comparable to that in singleness is there something that we can taste is there something that can draw us to work to God in a unique way and not find it I mean also we're missing out on something and there's nothing to do about that <laughs> there is, there is something, there is something different about both ways. Like, I mean, there's, I don't want to be like, oh no, it's gonna be, it's gonna be the same. Everybody gets, everybody gets equal good. Um, but like, I mean, I, I can't help but think of of Jesus as being, as being God among us, and um, not, not, uh, not having sex, and not having that sort of. Uh, uh, not having that, I, I, I'm super hesitant to sort of give a generalized, universal rule that Audrey might not be. Uh, or, I don't know, or, or no, no, or, or sort of like, like, and I also don't want to sell. Um, I either don't want to sell sex in marriage as always this and exclusively this. You know, it can often be humiliating. It can be disappointing. It can actually not do this. Um, uh, and then I don't want to sort of sell celibacy and singleness as as either it's all it's all deprivation, it's all isolation, it's all loneliness, or that somehow it's those things, but you get some other good. I I I would be I would be hesitant. Uh, to to do that, um, which maybe I don't know, maybe as an evasion, but Audrey and then maybe Audrey um, and Priya. Yeah, I guess one thought I had in response to the question about humanness, and then going back to I guess a little bit about poetry and and being on the kind of um, the emotional, not the cognitive. Um, that really sort of closed with me how maybe it's not easy to understand other circumstances. In the text itself, it's not explicit, like maybe some song on the radio might be today, but it kind of just covers. And what 
that makes me think about is whether it be marriage or celibacy, there's this um, mystery, like the mystery of, you know, the physical, the spiritual, the emotional. Um, but I don't have an answer for, like, that celibacy, you know, how do you experience this emotional thing, you know, as a single person, but it strikes me from people who are married and then um, as a single person that it's a constant exercise of like walking with God and then he, like it, it's your discovery your, your discovery mystery you're seeking you're seeking either whether the marriage and his reflection of himself there or as a single person um, yeah I don't know that, that's a quick thought and there I just want to read another I didn't read this section but this is in the fifth chapter this is I, I should have Sarah read this but she's gone to put her children to bed um but, so this is the woman saying, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. And then this is the voice. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, and my locks with the drops of the night. And she says to herself, I put on my garment. How could I put it, or I put off my garment. How could I put it on? I bathed my feet. How could I get them dirty? My beloved put his head to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved. My hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. This is, it takes a dark turn here. They beat me and they bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. So there's a lot of, even in here, a lot of unsatisfied desire and a lot of disappointment. And I mean, it's all, to me, this, it all, it starts almost comically. Oh, you want me to get up? Like I just, I'm in my pajamas. Like, <laughs> what are you like? Seriously, right now? And then finally going there, and then it's too late. And um, so, um, yeah, Priya, you had something to say. I'm sorry. Well, I'm, no, it's fine. I'm just wondering, kind of continuing the thought about Jesus not having sex. And sort of what his intimacy with God looked like was through prayer, and 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 maybe that can sound like a trite answer of like, well, you just got to pray. Or, but I guess I'm wondering if that's maybe the ideal of as a single person. Um, one way that those intimacy needs could be met in a way. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Thinking loud. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. Tom, did you? Uh, this is not an answer. This is yet another way that single people do not experience the type of love. Not having children. Not understanding the love of a child and what it must just be the analogies often in scripture of God's love as of children giving up his own son, what that must have meant. Mm-hmm. 
mean, so that's yet another experience that single people don't easily get. Yeah. And, and it makes me wonder how, I mean, it makes me wonder where such, as uh, I can't map, ask the same question, where, where do those experiences come from? Or where, where, where are such uh, bone deep, bone deep known, where, where does such bone deep knowledge come from? Or where, where can it be had? I don't have an answer, but I really appreciate your question. And I'm ignorant as to what that knowledge is and how to check it. Um, but I also, it makes me think about, you know, in the Gospels, God, how Jesus challenges the biological uh, family and how he says, you know, this is my mother and my brother, you know. Um, and so, again, it's a mystery, but it's a gift. I mean, that's a gift to have children of your own flesh and blood, but also he calls us to see each other outside of our biological families as, as brothers and sisters and brothers. So, But that, like, it strikes me then, like, especially that line, I loved your ending, Joshua, about bones not breaking and, like, you, yes. Um, but, like, the fact that the church takes off among the most oppressed and takes off among women and takes off among slaves because it's not dependent on the current power structures to give people places and to give people identity or value or whatever. In Psalm 113, verse 9, this one struck me specifically in this way. It says, He settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. And, I don't know, as a single person myself, not having children, like I've, I've just been more aware of my friend's children or that just that they're not even my nieces or nephews. They're not like biologically, like, I'm not responsible for that. <laughs> but, but there is something really unique and interesting about the fact that I have a role in that in yeah. those lives um, and that I am needed and valued. And it, it logically, that doesn't make sense. There's nothing joining that. Um, I don't know. It's just cool. The... Um, the original thought was about uh, though though we don't you know we're not able to as a single person have children or, or what have you um, and so we miss out on that relationship I think is that kind of what was being said but while we might not all be parents we are all children so you know we have at least some reference to what that relationship is just coming from the other direction and again I love um, what was said about being able to collectively parent you know there are many who are underprivileged or who didn't have very good uh, chances to um, be parented well and um, we get to take them under our wings and parent whether or not we have had biological children Anyone else want to add to this? This has been really, I've appreciated everyone's comments quite a bit. Or there could be a hard turn. Yeah. What was the name of that community you talked about at the end? About the bombs? 
Oh, uh, so I, I heard about it from a woman named, uh, who's an Anglican priest named Tish Harrison Warren, and it's just research on bones in, in, uh, ancient, like Northern Europe, ancient Europe. And, um, so there's, there's, it happens in multiple communities. I could, I could get you a little more on that. Um, um, Well, thank you for coming. Happy Valentine's Day. Uh,